On the Record with Gavin Riley. Sunday morning at 11. Brought to you by PwC, a dedicated private business team built around you. It all adds up to the new equation on News Talk. Uh, let's look at things uh, across the water because, look, it's very difficult not to be aware that the Premier League is back this weekend. Today's games, uh, two of them live on Off the Ball. We have Brentford versus Tottenham, uh, one team that has just sold its club captain for £100 million. Uh, and then the second game of the afternoon, Chelsea versus Liverpool, two teams that are in a bidding war for a defensive midfielder who scored one and assisted one goal in 37 Premier League appearances last year. Uh, so obviously, money is a very big talking point. Kieran Maguire is a professor in football accountancy at the University of Liverpool. Kieran, thank you for joining us. Um, a big question kind of raises if, if football is now such a big money thing that what's in it for the owners it's difficult to identify benefits for the owners uh, it, it's a bit like rate owning a racehorse in many ways is that, that there's two enjoyable days there's the, the day that you buy it and the day that you sell it and in between it's, it's a very expensive and at times painful and miserable existence but it doesn't stop people still wanting to come into the game. If you take a look at the Glazer family at Manchester United, they, they effectively borrowed money to acquire the club in, in 2005 for somewhere in the region of seven to 800 million euro, and they could easily sell the club for six to seven billion. So I think lots of people have seen that model and think that that can work. At the other end of the scale, you've got the huge losses incurred by Mansour at Manchester City, Abramovich at Chelsea, and even some of the smaller clubs, you know, the likes of uh, yes, uh, Sunderland and Villa, where, where you had owners walking away and effectively writing off billion, billion and a half euro losses. We, we have what we refer to at times is called the bigger fall theory, in that you buy a football club, you plump it up, you, you put it on the market, and, and you find an Egypt who is, believes that there's an opportunity to make money, and, and then, you, then you sell it to them and, and walk away. I was talking to somebody very senior in the game only this week and, and he echoes those particular thoughts. Which then sort of begs the question as to if, if the only good days are the day that you buy the club and the day that you sell the club, um, does that mean that effectively this idea of sports washing or of ownership by petrostates or people who are using the club to, to market themselves in some other way, that that almost becomes the only rational reason why you'd ever buy a club of, of Premier League stature? Well, it could be that you think that you're a genius, you can turn a club round. And that there is genuine gold at the end of the rainbow. We've seen with the likes of Project Big Picture and the Super League an opportunity to concentrate money, power and decision making in the hands of fewer and fewer people. Now, if you are in one of those lifeboats, in effect, as far as football finance is concerned, then then you can see the financial benefits. Um, the Glazers are going to make money. Uh, John Henry uh, and uh, Fenway Sports Group are going to make money out of Liverpool. They they bought the club for, what, €350 million Euro 12 years ago. They, they could sell it for 10 times that amount today. So there are some opportunities, but the buying prices have substantially increased. And uh, petrostates do, do see the benefit of increasing profile and bringing in sort of socioeconomic in terms of their relationship domestically with, with their population, in enhancing their profiles as well into this, which is not something you can measure uh, from, mm. from a balance sheet perspective. So it is all to do with soft power. And then occasionally you've got fans who become billionaires who decide to buy their local football club because it's what we've all, you know, if, if you or I won the lottery, it's something we'd 
give serious consideration to doing. Yeah, I've seen that series of Sky One's Dream Team, though. I'm not sure if that always works out as romantically as people might always think. I do remember <laughs> I remember the guy who won the lottery. He literally gave the club away at the end, and he ended up giving it to a fan who was sitting in the home section who was actually an away fan. And look, at my, my Harchester United fandom can wait for another day. Um, on the, on the, the topic of, of um, sports washing, though, or the, you know, the impact of, for example, Saudi Arabia buying Newcastle United, Manchester City being owned effectively by, by the UAE, Manchester United prospectively being bought by Qatar... Does that matter so much? Because we we have this very like moral hang up in the Western world. Where we sort of think, oh, you know, we don't want our our community institutions, these things that we've grown up loving. We don't want them to be political playthings. Does the rest of the world give as much of a fig as we do? I don't. I don't think they do. Um, football is a very strange industry in that it becomes the the lightning rod for moral and social outrage, in a sense that many other industries don't. We, we all are quite happy to, to fill up our cars with fuel from the Middle East and fuel from Russia. Uh, and, we, and we don't consider ourselves to be contributing towards those regimes with perhaps that don't fit, fit in alignment with sort of Western liberal viewpoints. Um, yeah, because hypocrisy is, 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 is fine, uh, but, but filling up your car is far more important. But football, is, it's, it's a very easy target. If you take a look at the extent of uh, Middle Eastern investment in real estate, and, and that, yeah, that's Dublin, London, Paris, Munich, New York. It, it, it's huge. Um, similarly, the likes of the Qatari Investment Board, uh, the, the industries that they've acquired in terms of they own substantial amounts of supermarket chains here in the UK, for example, that is is quietly ignored. And then I've sort of worked with the UK government with regards to some of the the, the new policies that are coming out with regards to football, and you, and you end up talking to politicians. And I'm I'm a political agnostic. I've got no interest in party politics, but they they, they point out, and you can see their point of view. Saudi Arabia is a very important trading nation as far as the UK is concerned. It's a very important ex- export market. Um, uh, so so why should football be treated any differently to other companies and, and industries which are encouraged to export to the Middle mm. East? Um, on the question of how competitive all of this is, like I, I don't want to be too misty-eyed because I know that there's, there's always been for for as long as there's been European football, there's always been bigger clubs and smaller clubs and some clubs that have bigger budgets than others. But it's very difficult to ignore now the rise of the Premier League is this this um, financial behemoth and the idea that if you were to look at the the twenty richest clubs at any one time that you'll have middle ranking Premier League teams that are far and away richer than some of the biggest dominant powers in in other European leagues. How much is the Premier League's own financial firepower skewing the competitiveness of the sport where now a middle-ranking Premier League team like, for example, a West Ham or an Aston Villa can comfortably outbid you know, a Borussia Dortmund or, or a PSG sometimes for a player that might be in the market? I, I, think, I think it is an issue if, if you take a look at the broader European market. Um, it could be seen that the Premier League is is being criticised, and it is criticised in Europe, it's being criticised because it got so many decisions right so early in its existence. It went out to the the international broadcast markets. It went out in, in the mid-1990s to Thailand, to Indonesia, to Nigeria, to Australia, and so on. It says, we've got a product. And remember, people forget that the English football was a pariah, you know, following what happened at Heisel. Uh, English, English mm. clubs were banned from Europe and... Uh, as somebody that's been watching football for 50 years, it, it wasn't particularly pleasant 
attending matches, but you did it out of a sense of you know out of a sense of this this crazy devotion that we have. Mm. Um, so the Premier League went out; it sold the rights to uh, broadcasters and effectively for nothing, and then came back three to five years later and says, "Look, we know what your viewing figures are like. We, we think you ought to pay a bit more." And the broadcasters were only too happy to pay those fees. And the likes of La Liga and the Bundesliga and, and Serie A, they, they were basking in the success of their, uh, their big teams. And they didn't feel the need to, to go and find alternative markets. Um, and therefore, the Premier League got, got a head start. And it's, there's, there's only so much room for football watching in, in individual countries. And the Premier League got such a head start in, in all of these international markets. It's now broadcast to 190 different countries around the world. Mm. The international TV rights sell for more than the, the domestic rights. And the domestic rights is the biggest single market um, for football in, in the whole of the world. So they, they got those decisions right. And on the back of that, the clubs became rich on because of the TV money. And then the club started spending money, and that attracted better players, which allowed the Premier League to charge even more for the TV rights. Mm. And, and we've, we've got into this sort of virtuous circle as far as the Premier League is concerned. Um, on the question of sustainability, though, and, and this is the, I'll make this the final question, Kieran, if I will, because you've been very generous with your time. One thing that does strike me is that because now it's becoming, as you mentioned, the, the domestic TV market, and by extension the Irish one, it's becoming very, very expensive now to continually follow a Premier League team because if you want to buy a new kit, and there's now two or three kits every year, if you want to buy each of them, if you want to buy them off the rack in the shop, it's going to cost you the guts of 100 quid each time. Then if you need to subscribe to all three of the TV providers that carry the Premier League in Ireland, it's going to cost you something in the region of at least 70 to 80 euros per month. It's going to cost about 1,500 quid just to buy the kits and watch the games before you've even thought about day tripping over to catch a game or two. And I wonder how does what what does the market do if your ordinary fan who just can't afford a grand a year to, to follow their team is ultimately priced out of the market to do so? Well, I think that's that is a concern within the industry itself, um, and that's why we've seen the, the huge growth in piracy as far as broadcast. You know, everybody has a friend down the pub called Dave who can get you a dodgy stick, mm. and then then you've got to go and make a moral choice. As, as to whether you go down that particular route. And the more expensive the subscriptions become from the, from the broadcasters, the more attractive the alternatives become. And it's the same, it's the same with, with the merchandise. You know, if, if I go to, to Salford Market, I, I can get Snide Manchester United shirts for, for, for 30 quid instead of paying 80 or 90 if you've got a couple of kids and, and you've got that pest of power. But one thing we do see about football, and, and I think it was Carlo Ancelotti is famous for saying this, it's the most important of the unimportant things in life. Mm. So what, what you'll do is, is you'll have a couple of pints less a week and you, you might, might go out for a one meal fewer a week because you still don't want to give up. It, it's, it's the last of our luxuries that we're prepared to give up is, is our addiction to football. And that's partly due to the way that the game markets itself and, and the fact that we do become addicts. You know, if, if, if men were as faithful to their wives as they are to their football teams, we wouldn't have any divorce, would we? On the record with Gavin Riley, Sunday morning at 11. Brought to you by PwC, a dedicated private business team built around you. It all adds up to the new equation on News Talk.